This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we're celebrating Black History Month, including a conversation with artist Narkita Gold about her work sharing stories of Denver's Black community. I'm all about healing and liberation, and those are two things that really like just resonated with me in my work. More on that. Plus, we hear about the history of Black cowboys in the West and how Black cowboy culture lives on in rodeos today. Those stories and more, just ahead. As Black History Month comes to a close, we bring you a selection of conversations about African-American history and culture in Colorado and here in the West. We begin with Black Cowboys. Colorado Edition producer Tess Novotny has the story. Cowboys played a crucial role in settling the West and establishing Western American culture. But you might not know that as many as one in three cowboys were Black. For Black History Month, we wanted to learn about the past and present of Black cowboys in Colorado and the American West. First, we are joined by Elise Clark, a historian who volunteers at the Black American West Museum in Denver. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm really proud to be here. To be honest, I don't actually know what the term cowboy means or where it came from. Can you explain? Cowboy refers to herdsmen. And herdsmen have existed, as we know, for thousands of years. And the name cowboy was first seen in print by Jonathan Swift in the 1700s. I laugh and we tease that the Western cowboy was a separate word, cowboy. We now use it as a compound word, but I always laugh and say, you know, the cowboys were black because they called them boy. But cowboys are people who are herdsmen. Their whole job is to take care of of the cattle and the horses. What drew so many Black people to becoming cowboys? When they were enslaved, that was part of their job, was to take care of the animals, the horses. Some of your earliest trainers of thoroughbreds and other horses were people of African descent. They come from an actual horse culture in Africa. And so it was a natural transition for them to go from their enslaved job to their free job, which gave them more opportunity to see things. And they had a freedom on the, on the uh, open plain that you couldn't get picking cotton on a plantation. One of the main things cowboys did in the late 1800s was organize cattle drives. This is where cowboys actually walked cows thousands of miles from the south to many places across the west, including Colorado. How did black cowboys participate in these drives? You had many of these cowboys. You had people like Bill Pickett. You had Nat Love, who left Tennessee and walked to Dodge City to become a cowboy. You have other cowboys who went as far as Canada. Some were all black outfits and some were integrated outfits, but they all moved the cattle anywhere from a thousand to three or more thousand miles to get them to the railheads so they can get to market. Were black cowboys accepted at that time or did they experience discrimination? In America, discrimination is woven into the fabric of who we are. And so, yes, they did experience that. But one thing about being a cowboy that these men were able to do was to prove their trustworthiness and their skill. 
before they were property. Now they could prove themselves as men. And I think that's the one thing about the West. Survival was the most important piece in the West. You could die quickly for no food, no water. Racism didn't really fit well with surviving. If someone was black and they had a cup of water, if you were really that prejudiced that you wouldn't drink from their cup, then you would, you know, be white bones on the on the plains. After the railroad was invented at the turn of the 20th century, there was no longer a need for cattle drives. People could just ship their cows out west or wherever they needed on the train. How did life for black cowboys change at that time? There are still small cattle drives. And you don't see them, no, on the level that they were in the 1800s. No, you don't see it like that. But people still have to move their cattle. But how it's changed is that now our horse cultures are smaller. 70 years ago, we were a much more rural country. More people lived on farms. And as people moved to the city, That land was lost, and that land is lost that we can't get back now. Elise Clark is a historian who volunteers at the Black American West Museum. Elise, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. One of the major places where cowboy culture lives on today is in rodeo competitions. And that's where our next guest comes from. Abe Morris is a Black, retired professional cowboy. He has also worked as a rodeo announcer and currently works for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Abe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on today, Tess. How did you first get involved with rodeo when you were growing up? Well, my cousins lived at a, there was a rodeo, a professional rodeo called Cowtown Rodeo. It's in Woodstown, New Jersey. And their house was only about 100 yards, maybe 150 yards from that rodeo arena. And when I was a kid, my dad sent me to live with them. So before I ever started kindergarten, I went and stayed with them for the whole summer and they were already into rodeo. So they just tried to convince me to do what they were already doing. Woodstown, New Jersey is obviously quite a ways from Denver where you live now. What brought you out West? I had a cousin, Gene Walker. He's about six years older than me. And he ended up getting a rodeo scholarship and going to Casper College in Casper, Wyoming. I followed him just because he went to Wyoming. If he'd have gone to Texas, I'm sure I would have gone to Texas, but I wanted to follow in his footsteps. The vast majority of people who participate in rodeo are white. Also, Wyoming, where you went to college, and Colorado are both extremely white states. What was it like for you to navigate that? It was different. You know, when I first showed up, I was kind of, I was a nervous little skinny kid from New Jersey. And I didn't wear my hat. I didn't wear my boots. I didn't have a buckle, a trophy buckle, because New Jersey, we didn't have high school rodeos. So I pretty much stashed away all my gear once I got to the dorm, but I still wore t-shirts. They said rodeo or they had bull riding emblems and things like that. And one day I was out playing basketball outside and this football player and his t-shirt said rodeo, America's number one sport. And he saw me wearing the T-shirt. He started giving me a hard time about it. What did you do? Well, I I told him I was a bull rider. I was a cowboy. I'm a bull rider. And he said, where are you from? And I said, New Jersey. He didn't believe me. He said, number one, there is no such thing as a black cowboy. And number two, I know you don't ride bulls. So this guy, his name was Nate. He was on the football team. He harassed me, I'll bet, for probably, probably three weeks. 
And I kept telling him, if you come up to my dorm room, I'll show you my photo album. Well, he wouldn't. And this went on for a couple of weeks. And finally, one day I walked out my dorm room. I was going to class and there was Nate on my floor. And I said, Nate, Nate, hold on. I said, let me go get my album. I'll show you. I'll prove to you I am a bull rider. And he was, man, I don't have time for you. I have to go to class. So I ran down, grabbed my album, showed it to him. And he started cursing up a storm, blankety, blank, blank. And he took off running with my photo album. Did you get it back? I did. I chased him down. Obviously, being a black cowboy in rodeo makes you really stick out a lot. What do you think needs to change in the rodeo world in order to make it more accessible to black people and other people of color? I don't know if it'll ever, ever, ever reach the the level that I was hoping it would. I mean, I, you know, when I got hurt, I got hurt in 1994 and I retired and I always thought, I meant now it's 2021. I always thought there'd be a lot more rodeo cowboys, a lot more black rodeo cowboys and bull riders out there. And there really isn't. There hasn't been a black bull rider qualified for the national finals rodeo since, since the early 2000s. And that was Mike Moore. He was originally from Chicago, Illinois. I'm hoping there'll be more black cowboys out there that'll, that'll, you know, take up the idea and kind of run with it. What advice do you have for young black cowboys, cowgirls, and wranglers who want to compete in professional rodeo? It's a tough sport. I mean, the thing about it is you don't see rodeo on TV as much as you do the other sports. You have to be around people that are involved. You have to be around animals. They're expensive. It's a dangerous sport. You know, I want to be a beacon. I want to pay it forward. People help me out and I want to see other black that come along. Anything I can do to help any people who want to be involved with rodeo, I'm all for it. They can contact me and I'll tell them and encourage them because I want more black people to be in professional rodeo. Abe Morris is a retired professional rodeo cowboy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Narkita Gold is a Denver artist. Her series Black in Denver features portraits and interviews highlighting the city's growing black community. She started the project in 2018 as a way to share the diverse experiences and stories of black residents from those born and raised here to those freshly relocated. And while the questions vary slightly, there are a few that show up in each interview. Who are you? What does it mean to you to be black in Denver? And how have your experiences in Denver shaped you? Earlier this month, KUNC's Amanda Andrews spoke with Gold about her visual ethnography and efforts to change the narrative for Denver's Black community. You're not originally from Colorado, so I was curious about what in Denver kind of led you to focus on disrupting that narrative. I'm from Nashville, Tennessee, and, you know, in some places, Blackness can be pretty rigid as far as how we can actually explore ourselves and, and, and express ourselves. One of the first things I noticed when I moved here was just the freedom of expression within the the Black diaspora. That's one thing that I thought was really beautiful. And I really started to move into a space here in my evolution of self where I just started to just like do me and express myself how I wanted to. And I found a sense of freedom in that. And once I realized that that's where freedom was, it was just like, this is the answer, (laughs) you know, like, just do you. Who cares like what society tells us it means to be Black? Because we've been told for so long this is what it means. Each of the subjects is photographed in front of either a green, blue, orange, pink, or yellow solid color background. What's the significance of those repeating colors and how do you pick who to interview? It was planned, but it wasn't planned. 
But I knew that I eventually wanted to hang them, right? Like I wanted to hang the photo somewhere. And I knew that I wanted to explore the fact that we are so many different things. I wanted to explore the color spectrum. And then also, as I kind of got into it, I was like, oh, these colors are also like colors from African textiles that kind of like connect to our, our roots and our heritage, right? So there are a number of layers of the colors. There's a, a spectrum. Every, and on my work, there will always be a spectrum. I'm always saying that, you know, we are so many different things. You can't fit us in a box. And as far as the, my participants, at first it started out with, I didn't know anyone here. I didn't have any fa- I don't have any family. I don't have any connections. I didn't have a community. So that's one reason I actually started this was to actually just meet people, right? And also ask questions about this experience that I had. And I wanted to know if other Black people were having the same like experience. Like, what is this about? What is it like to be you here? You know? So it started out with my yoga teacher, a friend of mine, and then some business owners that I knew. And I asked them to pay it forward. Like, so who would you recommend? It went on from there. So paying it forward and then going in community and meeting people and hearing things. And something else that I noticed was there's a, there's a lot of healing happening here in Denver. A lot of people are just like finding out how to heal themselves from just trauma that comes with being Black, from police brutality, microaggressions, like the the residual effects of slavery and all of that. You know, there are lots of people who are doing intentional healing work. And I really got into um, that and started to like just meet healers here in Denver and and started to include them in the series because I'm all about healing and liberation. And those are two things that really like just resonated with me in my work. Let's talk about how this project has evolved over time, especially given how painful this past year has been specifically for the Black community. How's that showing up in the series? I'm not speaking directly to what's happening, but I am so focused on healing in my work. If someone's talking about their spirituality and how it helped them find out who they are and heal themselves, if someone is talking about meditation and healing themselves, it's in there. And I've been pushing people lately to like, go and read the full interviews because there's, it's, there's stuff in there for you. You know, there's something in there for you and, and everyone has their own way of healing, right? There's not just one way. I've found so many different ways. And I really want to break the stigma around these certain types of healing that, you know, is available to us. It's not just in Denver, it's everywhere. This exhibition is focused on exploring questions of systemic injustice and suggesting avenues of moving towards solutions. So we've been talking a lot about healing. How do you think this series fits into the larger idea of creating a more thoughtful and inclusive community? I explore the question is like, what's next? So... When I saw the prompt, I was just thinking about, okay, this is where we are. And it's called from this day forward, where are we moving towards? And one of the questions, so what am I, I'm featuring is a word cloud. Um, and I asked all my participants, for most of them, um, to describe Denver in one word. And one of the words that came up the most was the word home. And I started asking myself, what, what is home? Where is that? Where is that for us? Right. And I started looking at in the, at a spiritual aspect and I started thinking, well, you know, for me personally, home is within. Right. Home is wherever I am. Home is right here. Right. And I started thinking about, well, how did I get to that point? And for me, it was through yoga and meditation. And one thing that I remember seeing at the yoga and meditation centers were these prayer flags. Prayer flags are always within these spiritual centers and the yoga places where I go. And what I did is I created these prayer flags, black prayer flags, and the, the colors are from the series and they feature 
answers to my question, what does it mean to be you? So it's like really deep introspective questions. So what I'm hoping to convey to my viewer is to go within, to obtain liberation and freedom and to heal yourself. So that's what I really ask myself is where's home and how do I facilitate healing and liberation? And that's just one way. There are many ways, but for me, that was just one way. And I decided to create thinking with that in mind. Finally, I wanted to give you the opportunity to answer a question I've seen so many of your subjects answer in the series, which is what does it mean to you to be Black in Denver and how have your experiences in the city shaped you? Yeah, so I would have to say to me, to be Black in Denver is, like I said, to find home within. And while I was in within, I really found the divinity that each and everyone has within us. And that divinity is who I truly am. And it's allowed me to also go within and heal myself. I used to hide myself and try and like fit a mold. And here I'm just like, no, I'm not going to do that. It's just to be myself unapologetically and to exist in spaces that sometimes I, I feel I'm overlooked or looked at and to exist like with just not concerned with what people think. You know, just do my thing and exist and be happy and be at peace and not let the chaos of this world get to me. That's what it means to be me here. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it was so nice to meet you, Amanda. That was KUNC's Amanda Andrews speaking with artist Narkita Gold about her series Black in Denver, which is on display at the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art through the end of May. You can find more about Gold's work and an extended version of this interview at our website, KUNC.org. February 13th marked the 101st anniversary of baseball's Negro League. Back when the sport was segregated, the league was where greats like Satchel Paige, Hank Aaron, and Jackie Robinson got their starts. Although Colorado didn't have any teams of its own, the state did play a large role in integrating the sport almost 90 years ago. For the anniversary earlier this month, Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber spoke with president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick, about a historic tournament that was later dubbed the Little World Series of the West. Early 1930s Colorado wasn't exactly a beacon of hope for racial progress. The Ku Klux Klan sponsored multiple members of the state House and Senate, and redlining practices kept African Americans from moving into prosperous neighborhoods. Nor was Colorado a stronghold for baseball. The state had a couple of semi-pro teams, but the major leagues only extended as far west as St. Louis, and the Negro Leagues as far west as Kansas City. But in 1934, Oliver Marcel, or as he was better known, the Ghost, had an idea to put baseball on the map and integration on the mind in the Mountain West. The Louisiana-born former Negro League third baseman had recently moved to Denver, And when the Denver Post was gearing up for its annual semi-pro baseball tournament, he insisted that the Kansas City Monarchs, a Negro League team, receive an invitation. The one thing we know is that the message absolutely got to J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Kansas City Monarchs. That's Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. The Denver Post tournament was the first organized baseball tournament to integrate, which allowed black teams in. Wilkinson would enter the Monarchs into the tournament, But Wilkinson also had some booking rights of the House of David that he also booked into the tournament. And again, the House of David was an all-white religious sect. And so they used baseball to spread their gospel 
But they played a great role in black baseball as they would barnstorm all over the country playing with and against Negro League teams, most notably the Kansas City Monarchs. But Wilkinson hired Satchel Paige to play for the House of David in that tournament. Yes, that Satchel Paige. The star pitcher who held a long career in the Negro Leagues before making his major league debut at the ripe young age of 42. To this day, he's remembered as one of the hardest-throwing pitchers in the game. The House of David became integrated, but that particular team was likely one of the few teams that actually was a white team that had black players on it. But Wilkinson also had some ulterior motives. In Wilkie's mind, he not only could win first-place prize money, but he could also get second-place prize money if everything went as planned. And so whether it was the ghost that got them in, Wilkinson's plan played out just as he had set it out to. Not only was this the first major integrated baseball tournament in the U.S., but the only integrated team at the tournament walked away with first place. The House of David and the Kansas City Monarchs dominated the tournament and ended up playing against each other in the championship game where Satchel and the great Negro Leaguer Chet Brewer hook up in an epic duel and the House of David would win the game 2-1 to one before an overflow crowd there in Denver and Wilkinson walks away with both first and second place money. Now, I don't think they got invited back again. But despite Wilkinson's antics, it was the skill of the Negro League players that made a lasting impact on the fans. I think it was an indication that here was a cross-section of the population that maybe we had not paid attention to that can play this game. And that era had its own stigma associated with it, even as the Post was writing the story. They would refer to Paige as the chocolate whiz-bang. You know, so you still had some of that racial stuff, but what white fans got a chance to do is see this great black talent. And uh, I think the reputation of these black ball players had preceded them anyway. People had heard about these players from the Negro League, but now they got a chance to see it for themselves. Colorado baseball historian Jay Sanford once said that Denver was the beginning of integration in baseball because Jackie Robinson certainly would not have integrated the league in 1947 had the Denver post-tournament not done so in 1934. And according to Kendrick, he's right. It was setting the stage. It, It really was. Number one, it proved that black and white players could play on the same field together. Number two, you could see for yourself how good these players were. This certainly started to set the stage for integration because as we move forward, there was a groundswell of support from white fans because people were recognizing there is a lot of talent in this league called the Negro League. And uh, this talent seems to be just as good, maybe better than the talent that was playing in the major leagues. So something's wrong here. And I do think that Denver was this great showcase to show that this was a possibility. It could happen. It took 13 more years before it finally happened at the major league level, but it certainly did happen. But within those 13 years, minor league teams across the country started to cross the color lines. Baseball's integration didn't start when Jackie Robinson first stepped up to the plate in Dodger Blue. It was a domino effect. And according to Kendrick... Those semi-pro teams that knocked down the first piece deserve a bit more credit. There were very few competitions then that was even open to blacks, no less an integrated team. And uh, they opened that door. They created that opportunity. 
and there was nothing semi about this House of David and certainly nothing semi about that Kansas City Monarch team. And they really did pull a fast one in that tournament. (laughs) But as for Oliver Marcel, or the ghost, the man who insisted the Denver Post integrate the tournament in the first place, life was not too kind. After the Little World Series of the West, he worked a series of odd jobs and died in poverty in 1949. He was buried in Denver in an unmarked grave. It is a reflection of the challenge that we have with Negro League's history in general. It was never substantially documented in the pages of American history books. So American historians did us all a tremendous disservice. They kept this wonderful chapter of baseball and Americana away from us. So we don't know the story of legendary ball players like Oliver the Ghost Marcel, who should absolutely be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. There are so many players who were part of the Negro Leagues that their stories still remain forgotten. The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and it's our job to make sure that they are remembered, but not only remembered, but celebrated. Celebrated for what they did to help change the game of baseball, but more importantly, what they did to help change this country for the better. And in 1991, one of those Negro League ballplayers was finally celebrated. The Colorado Rockies, along with the help of Louisiana's minor league Zephyrs, ceremoniously unveiled a new headstone dedicated to the man who championed baseball's first major integrated tournament. If you visit Denver's Riverside Cemetery today, you'll find a grave that reads, Oliver the Ghost Marcel brought professional black baseball to Colorado. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Ray Solomon, Tess Novotny, and Alana Schreiber. Brian Larson is our executive producer. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.